Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. A surprise production cut from OPEC Plus earlier this month has rocked oil markets. The price of oil rallied following the announcement, but have since stabilized as inflation concerns linger. All of this unfolding as the U.S. continues to shift towards cleaner and more sustainable forms of energy. So how much of an impact will the OPEC cuts have on energy and overall inflation? And where can investors find opportunity within the sector? Paul Gooden, Senior Research Analyst, joins us today to discuss the latest trends in the U.S. energy sector, including his investment thesis for the months ahead. Paul explains the energy trilemma framework of balancing affordability, sustainability, and reliability to host Pamela Ritchie today. Without managing all three, Paul says, you get unintended consequences, like coal demand being at an all-time high today. He also notes the energy transition is still in the first innings, with peak oil demand not forecasted until the 2030s or later. CapEx on oil and gas is 70% below its 2014 peak, and Paul sees opportunities for more CapEx in oil field services, as well as opportunities in the clean energy space if we are disciplined as investors. This podcast was recorded on April 19th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Paul, great to see you. Nice to meet you. Pamela, it's a pleasure to be here and thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, an absolute pleasure to to have you here with us today. So many questions. Paul, let's actually ask you to sort of paint the picture of where we are, because I think many can be forgiven by being drawn by just so many energy headlines over the course of the last year and a half, pretty much. Um, Where where do we sit at this point, would you say? Yeah, so when oil hit, you know, $120 last summer and gas prices in Europe were hitting all-time highs last summer, we saw some people paint the analogy to the 1970s when we had two energy crises. And in some regards, what society is facing now is, is more complex than that, because in the 1970s, it was just oil, whereas what we're facing now is it's not just oil, it's gas as well. And look, I think one way to kind of think about this is in a framework is the so-called energy trilemma. And when we talk about the energy trilemma, we're kind of saying energy needs to be three things. It needs to be affordable, it needs to be sustainable, and it needs to be reliable. And at various points of the last 20 years, we focused on various parts of that. So pre the Paris climate deal, it was all about affordability. And then post the Paris climate deal, sustainability became very important. And then post the Russia invasion of Ukraine, reliability became very important. And it's almost like a game of whack-a-mole. But the reality is we need to focus on all three of those. And if you don't, you can end up with unintended consequences. So for example, now global coal demand is at an all-time high. And coal is 
the worst of the hydrocarbons in terms of emissions intensity. It's about twice as bad as, as gas and oil's kind of in the middle. And so because we weren't focusing enough on reliability, when Russia turned off the taps for gas to Europe, coal demand globally went up. So I think this kind of energy trilemma framework is a useful way to think about things going forward. I wonder if you can link to uh, not just headlines. I mean, these are these are stories and announcements with with massive legs, if you will. But can you link the Biden administration's uh, inflation reduction act, which is which is essentially an awful lot of spending on the sustainability part of the trilemma you mentioned there, um, yeah. with the OPEC cuts? Let, let's go there. What what is the link there? What is the link? So, well, let's let's start with with the OPEC cuts. Um, and I guess sort of coming into this year, we had the regional bank crisis in the US and there were concerns that that was going to impact the flow of credit into the US economy and that was going to impact global oil demand. And we saw the oil price come off on the back of that. And you know, it's true, you know, US refiners are talking about a little bit of softness in diesel demand. And OPEC you know, has a bit of a history of kind of being reactive and so what was very interesting about what they did at the start of April is that was quite proactive. So, you know, they're, they're, they're managing the market. And, and one of the reasons I think they're willing to manage the market is because U.S. shale is being disciplined. And U.S. shale is being disciplined because of all sorts of reasons, um, one of which is pressure from investors not to aggressively grow. There'd be no point in OPEC cutting production if U.S. shale was just going to increase production itself. So because shale's being disciplined, OPEC's willing to manage the market, and that's what's kind of like put a floor under the oil price in the last couple of weeks. In terms of the IRA, I mean, that's something different. I think, you know, clearly um, politicians want to green up their economies. One of the challenges I think the US has is that China dominates the supply chain of many clean energy technologies. So how do you, on the one hand, green up the US economy, but do it in a way that isn't just subsidizing China. And, and one way you do that is through having domestic tax credits. And, and the IRA is really a game changer for US clean energy. And it's kind of, you know, it's, it's headline, you know, budget is around 400 billion, but it's actually an uncapped program. So people are speculating that it could end up costing two to three times that. So it's a, it really is, you know, moving the, the, the dial for um, the US clean energy sector. It's, it's fascinating. And, you know, to what extent do investors have to sort of live with the fact that there is a transition? Because it's really tricky. You know, it has very serious ramifications for changing the way things are. But there's been lots of discussion of how much of a transition there is. Maybe there doesn't need to be as much. I mean, the U.S. might be a good example of transitioning later. I mean, is the transition for real? Look, the, the transition is in you know, the first innings. Um, and I think investors, you know, we, we need to deal with the world as it is, not how we'd like it to be. And we have to absorb some home truths. And one of those home truths, as I mentioned earlier, is global coal demand is, is at an all-time high. And you know, the IEA, in their latest um, policy document, put out a scenario which they call their stated policies scenario, which takes account of all government initiatives. And it says that peak oil demand will be in the mid-2030s. And I suspect peak gas demand is in the 2040s. So we just need to remember that we're in the early stages. It's called a transition for a reason. And it, and it will take quite a long time. 
Um, and I think you know, government incentives are, are key to really kind of um, you know, lowering the cost of clean energy so you know, consumers are willing to, to switch. So if, if, let's say that's correct, or if you want to use those markers that you, you just mentioned, um, does there have to be more investment actually in oil if, if it's, it's not even going to peak until next decade? Yeah, so look, on, on the one hand, oil and gas companies are careful in that they don't want to invest in stranded assets. Um, you don't, you know, because with these big international oil and gas projects, you know, it can take six, seven, eight, nine, ten years between making the final investment decision and that oil and gas coming on. Shale is slightly different. Shale's much kind of shorter cycle. It can take, you know, nine months to a year. But you don't want to be spending billions of dollars on a project only to be selling that production when it comes on into a market that's, de that's, that's declining. And so what's really happened over the last decade is that the oil and gas industry has been preemptively underinvesting in new projects. And so if you look at oil and gas capex in 23, it'll be around probably 35% below where it was in 2014, which was the peak. And that, that's kind of in nominal terms. So in real terms, CapEx is about 70% down. And so we've been preemptively underinvesting. And I think we're going through a bit of a sea change now in that people are beginning to think that, you know, peak oil and gas demand, you know, it's not this decade, it's a little bit further out. And I think some companies are looking at their portfolio of assets and saying, maybe we're a little bit short here. Maybe we need to CapEx a little bit more. Maybe we need to do a bit of M&A to, to buy some more assets in. So, Look, it's, it's important that I think, um, you know, they're, 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 we need more capex in, in oil and gas projects. And I think if you really want to transition, people need to focus on the, on the demand side of things. Um, because by restricting supply, all you're going to do is force up the price of oil and gas. So that's fascinating. And for investors who are looking at, well, looking at the performance of equities that have, as you say, not been investing and therefore handing the profits straight back to investors over the course of sort of recent history and has been a real windfall on that front. Where do sort of the oil majors, the the equity side of things, um, not just oil majors, but, you know, could be the um, all sides of sort of the infrastructure side of the oil story. Where, where do they sit on a relative basis after seeing some pretty good returns on oil equities recently. Yeah, so look, if you look at, you know, in 21 and 22, US energy outperformed the market by about 100% over that period. That followed a period of big underperformance. So, but, but a very good 21, 22. In 23, we've given a little bit back. Um, and the reason for that, I kind of mentioned at the outset in terms of there've been concerns about global, global macro weakness. And we also had a very warm winter globally um, which impacted gas demand. So it was a relatively kind of weak Q1. Um, we had the OPEC cut at the start of um, April. So that's going to put, a, put a, uh, a line under things. So look, when I kind of look forward now in terms of valuations, I think the overall sector is trading on like a, you know, seven, seven and a half percent free cash flow yield. And, um, you know, a lot of that free cash flow yield is, is coming back to, to um, shareholders in the form of dividends. So, you know, relative to the market, that's quite an attractive free cash flow yield. And I guess, you know, something that we're all trying to figure out is, you know, what's the longevity of that, um, which feeds into the discussion around, you know, when is peak 
peak demand going to happen? It's absolutely fascinating how how all of this works. Do, do a little bit on the, you know, at this point, sort of focus on the European either majors. Well, yeah, let's look at the majors versus the U.S. majors. Um, we often think that a lot of the the European oil companies have done a much better job on the transition front. But now you see, I mean, how, how do those two look versus one another, US versus European oil companies? Yes. So the European majors have taken a different route to the US majors. The European majors have decided to pivot aggressively towards clean energy. Um, and many of them are investing in utility scale wind and solar. And the US companies have kind of pivoted more slowly. And, and, and you can see this in terms of like capex, percentage of capex going towards clean energy versus oil and gas. And what is quite interesting is that when you look at the price the book value of the US majors versus the, the, the European majors, the US majors have re-rated upwards and the European majors have de-rated downwards. And I think the reason for that is you're getting quite high returns when you invest in oil and gas projects, but you're getting kind of utility type lower returns when you invest in utility scale wind and solar. And there are many other players investing in that space from infrastructure funds to utility companies. So the US companies have, are pivoting more slowly, but in the last year they have picked things up. And one of the reasons they are doing, they are accelerating a little bit is because of the Inflation Reduction Act, which provides quite attractive um, incentives. So they've, I think they've, they've played quite a good game. They've kind of you know, held back a little bit. Now they're pivoting, but they're pivoting in areas where there are clear adjacencies to their core businesses. So you know, biofuels would be an example, carbon capture would be an example, um, and green hydrogen are, are the main areas that they're focusing on. So that, that sort of answers the question, because you do sort of have this question lingering whether oil companies should suddenly be different types of energy companies, or if they're just really good at pumping oil, why don't you let them just pump oil? I mean, so that goes to that nuance. Yeah, and, and of course, as, as investors, you know, if we want to own a pure play utility company that invests in utility scale wind and solar, we can make that portfolio decision ourselves. You know, we don't necessarily need an oil and gas company to do that. So look, it, it's important that companies you know, focus on their core competence, core competencies, um, and you know, returns are important. Pro project returns are important. A couple of questions rolling in here. A couple of them actually, you've you've answered already. But um, one of them is when you're speaking to companies, um, what are some of the questions that you're asking management teams in this environment? Sure. So it, it depends on what type of company it is. So if it's an upstream on a gas company, clearly they don't control the price of their product, and you know, all they can really control is firstly, capital allocation decisions, um, and then secondly, project execution. So I tend to ask about those things. So in terms of um, capital allocation decisions, how much are you going to capex? How much are you going to return to shareholders? Are you going to do it through dividends or buybacks? And in terms of project execution, you know, oil and gas projects notoriously go over budget and take longer than people think. So it's important to get your arms around the projects and just make sure there's not too much project risk there. Um, if it's a refiner, refiners are closer to the ultimate customer. So you can talk to them about what, what sort of demand trends are they seeing in gasoline and, and in diesel. Um, if it's a clean energy company, um, 
you know, I'm talking to them at the moment about the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, how much is it going to help them? And there's still some kind of fuzziness there in terms of who's going to benefit. And, and you also talk to them about the demand trends. I mean, it's clear there's going to be an awful lot of volume growth for clean energy companies, but sometimes that demand growth can, can be a little bit choppy. You know, maybe there are supply chain constraints that are slowing down the deployment of some of these technologies. Um, you know, in, in the US, there are quite big issues in terms of connecting new wind and solar farms to the grid. So that can delay the cadence of some projects. Um, so yeah, hopefully that gives you a, a bit of a sense of the type of things I, I'm asking them. Yeah, no, very helpful. I mean, while we're sort of on the discussion of, of projects, um, one of the ones that was announced, and I mean, it seemed like a surprise from, from the way I think a lot of people read it, but what did you think when you saw um, Biden's approval for the, this is the Willow Project in Alaska? It, it seemed like really the polar opposite of what his administration might support a couple of years back. Yeah, look, I, I, I wasn't surprised it was approved. Um, I mean, from the operator's perspective, th this is a good project. And when I say a good project, I mean it's a low cost of supply project. Um, and I think the decision to approve it reflects, firstly, the fact that the operator had done a lot of work from an environmental perspective, had, had jumped through the requisite hoops, had got the um, the, 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 the sort of local government to, to approve the project. And I think it also reflects just the real, the, the, the real politic of the situation, right? Which is that, yes, we want to transition, but it's gonna take a while. And you know, this project won't come on until um, the, the, the end of this decade. Um, oil, peak oil demand is gonna be beyond then. Um, and, and perhaps also there's a, there's a sense that, you know, shale has been a phenomenal grower in the US, but shale is, is, is slowing. Um, and yes, it, it'll be here for a long time, but I don't think you're gonna see shale, you know, grow by a million barrels a year again. And so perhaps by the end of the decade, when this project comes on, perhaps shale will be kind of plateauing and starting to kind of come down a little bit. So it kind of perhaps reflects, um, you know, energy security needs. Right, oh, fascinating. Any thoughts on nuclear? Uh, in a word, no. Um, it's not an area that, that I focus on, and it's quite difficult to invest in it from a public markets perspective. Um, you know, the, the only comment I'd, I'd share is, and this is a sort of a pithy comment, is that you know, I've heard it said that commercial nuclear fusion is, is a decade away, and it always will be. In other words, um, you know, it's, it's one thing to demonstrate it um, within the confines of a, uh, a science lab. It's another thing to turn it into a commercial venture. Even when you hear things like, oh, there'll be, there'll be small, um, what do they call them, sort of mobile um, reactors. Yeah, look, I mean, it, it, it varies by geography. So you know, just last week, for example, you know, Germany turned off um, its, it, its last nuclear reactor. Um, in France, which is very big on nuclear, they've had big issues in terms of reliability. So I think, you know, politically, um, it's quite difficult to get some of these projects over the line. Um, but yes, I mean, you know, small scale modular nu nuclear, it's, it's, it's probably, it's got a part to play. I kind of think in energy, you know, we need like an all of the above type approach, okay? You know, global population's growing, um, you know, people's energy uses is growing. So it, it's a growing pie. And, you know, I think, you know, nuclear, fossil fuels, clean energy, they all have a role to play. The transition's gonna happen, but it's just gonna take quite a long time. Did you 
say that China is just, I don't know the word to use, but sort of miles ahead on the, the green energy front or the development anyway? Yeah, no, so what I said is, is that when you look at the clean energy supply chain, so solar modules, inverters, um, wind turbines, things like that, China dominates the supply chain. Um, you know, it'll be kind of 80 to 90% of the global supply chain in each of those areas. Um, and that just reflects, you know, government subsidies, um, different ESG um, thresholds. It, it kind of becomes a problem, right, in that, um, and, and, you know, the U.S. has got a whole bunch of tariffs and, and, and non-tariff blocks that kind of restrict the flow of some of these things into the U.S. But, you know, this comes back to, you know, the, the IRA. You know, how do you, on the one hand, massively upscale green energy, but do it in a way that doesn't just subsidize semi-government-owned enterprises in, in, in China. And so, you know, in the last kind of six months since the IRA has been announced, there have been a whole bunch of domestic expansions announced by companies. So, you know, you really are beginning to see companies respond to those tax credits to develop a homegrown U.S. supply chain. That's so interesting. Well, just on the domestic development or side of things. This is slightly a different question, but looking at the US energy picture, do you look at domestic usage or or really is it just an export story? Yeah, no, we, yeah, we do look at domestic usage in terms of the various global demand buckets. You know, the single biggest demand bucket is the US driver. Um and and you know, US gasoline demand is something that we focus on. Um and um you know, it's, it's doing okay. I mean, the, the, the sort of pattern I'm seeing in the last few months in, in the US from a demand perspective is diesel demand softening a little bit, um, gasoline demand kind of hanging in there a little, you know, quite well, actually. So yes, it's, it, it's, a, it's an important thing to focus on. Really interesting. Um, in terms of opportunities, again, looking, looking within sort of the various subsectors within energy, which ones provide, you know, some real opportunities for people? Is it, um, you mentioned upstream versus downstream. I mean, can you provide a little more uh, nuance and detail there? Yeah, so look, I mean, there are two areas I would highlight, I think are particularly interesting at the moment. Um, the first one is oil field services, and in particular, international oil field services. So I referenced earlier the global CapEx picture, you know, 35% below the 2014 peak, like 70% below in real terms. And what you're beginning to see is upstream companies increase their capex, um, and, and not just the IOCs. If you look at if you look, look in the Middle East, for example, Saudi Aramco just announced a one-third increase in their capex in 23. Um, and so I think international capex is going to be going up. I think that sort of increase in spend has some duration to it. So I think um, you know there are various companies kind of, sort of leveraged to that dynamic. So I think that's that's one area. The, the, the second area, um, which won't come as a surprise, is, is clean energy. You know, we're in the first innings. If you look at global energy consumption, primary energy consumption, about 83% of it comes from fossil fuels. Um, that's going to be going down um, over the medium and long term. So I think that there's a lot of growth ahead for some clean energy companies. But you know, clearly, you need to be very disciplined in terms of focusing on companies with strong management teams and, and high barriers to entry, and of course, you know, decent valuations. You mentioned a bit earlier that you know, the floor, to an extent, has been set by, by those OPEC cuts earlier this month. Um, 
You mentioned that OPEC also wants to make sure it has a handle on the ceiling, though. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Yeah, so it doesn't want oil too high, obviously. Yeah, you 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 don't want to create demand destruction, and you know you don't want to set the pricing umbrella so high in fossil fuels that it creates this really attractive pricing umbrella under which other technologies can flourish, like like clean energy. So look, I. I suspect, from a from an OPEC perspective, I think probably you know, kind of eighty-ish is quite a nice zone for them. Um, you know, there's not going to be demand destruction in that kind of zip code, um, and OPEC and other upstream companies can, can can make a lot of money. What What would you say are the biggest changes, and, and maybe there aren't that many of them, or or maybe there are after the Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine. You know, Europe had to make sure it was getting gas from different operators. That was that was a must. That did happen. There have been changes there. Are there other changes around the world to to who is supplying whom to oh, highlight? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question. Okay, so and let's divide it into oil and gas. So with oil, um, there have been a whole bunch of sanctions imposed by various parties on Russian oil exports. Um, you know, there is, a, there is a saying that says, look, the molecules always find a way to market. And that seems to be what's happening. Um, those molecules, are, the Russian molecules, are, are sort of not so much going to Europe. They're going to India and China. But I think, you know, in general, you've seen people reduce their estimate of the amount of barrels that are going to be removed from the market because of the Russian sanctions. Um, and, and oil is, you know, it, it's a global commodity. It's very fungible. Gas is different. Gas is quite a regional commodity. And sort of Russian exports to Europe, um, pipeline exports, it's about 5% of global supply, of the global gas supply. And it's very difficult to reroute those, okay? Because you can't just ship gas to other parts of the world. So removing that gas from Europe has removed it from the global supply and demand picture, which is one of the reasons why gas prices went up. So in terms of you know, what's happening, you, you know, you've, you've basically seen Russia indicate they're going to build more pipelines to take that gas to China. And, and Europe is increasingly signing LNG, liquefied natural gas deals, with the US. And so if you look at US LNG exports, the, the current capacity is about 14 BCF a day of, of LNG exports. And there's an additional 10 BCF a day of projects under construction. And there's another 15 BCF a day of projects awaiting FID. So, you know, this has been a you know very interesting story in that you know, US is increasingly supplying gas to partners around the world via liquefied natural gas. Does that change the dynamics of buying oil in US dollars, or is it sort of net nothing, net zero? No, I don't look in, in, in terms of benchmarks, you know, you've you've seen, you know various people talking about setting up new benchmarks other than Brent and WTI and China saying it wants to pay for it in renminbi, not US dollars. But no, I think that's a kind of like a separate issue to the LNG gas supply demand issue. Interesting. Okay. Fascinating. If you wanted to leave investors with sort of one thought to just keep either at the back of their mind or at the forefront, um, what, what would it be? I think the, the, the key thing I would leave people with is that, you know, the energy transition is going to take a while. And you know, we need to start from a position 
of recognizing the reality of where we are, which you know is not in a great spot really. You know, I, I've referenced a few times the global coal demand. Um, you know, we need to be pragmatic. Um, as I mentioned earlier, natural gas has got half the emissions intensity of coal. So, you know, does natural gas have a role to play in the transition? Yes, it does. So, you know, it's called a transition for a reason. We need an all of the above type strategy and we need to be pragmatic as we slowly transition away from fossil fuels. It's been an absolute delight to, to get your perspective and, and have it shared uh, here today. Thank you for joining us. Pamela, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.